0: The scripture reading comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 to 18. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ it is taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Ren, would you come on forward? I want to introduce to you today our guest preacher. This is Ren Cabente. Um, Ren, remind, I hope I'm saying that correctly. Your last name, I've never pronounced it out loud, so this is the first time. Uh, Ren is a pastor of one of our sister churches in Manhattan, Uptown Community Church, and it's really a joy and a pleasure to have him bring us the Word of God today. So this is Ren. Uh, good morning, everybody. Um, and bring you greetings to, uh, good job pronouncing my name I mean i don 't know if you saw it in the bulletin. nobody ever gets it right because I mean, look at it, nobody should get it right. Uh, um, but I bring you greetings from Uptown Community Church, Washington Heights and Inwood is uh, our neighborhoods. Um, so if you 're trying to place me, that means I 'm a Japanese Filipino who passes a church in a Dominican and Jewish neighborhood uh, because we believe that the gospel is so powerful that it crosses cultures. And so I'm really at home here, and the first couple things I hear is a scripture reading in Portuguese. That was Portuguese, right? Yeah, Portuguese, and then uh, our sister's prayer that said, uh, diversity is complicated, but praise God for it. And so uh, I'm a little bit at home uh, here. Astoria Community Church was always the church that we felt like we wanted to be like when we grew up uh, at Uptown, so. I'm really honored to be here. Uh, Today, I want to take you to a passage that was just read to you that teaches uh, that with the grace of God that comes in Jesus, you get a gift. And it's a gift that I think if you're in church this morning, uh, you really, really want it, but you're never sure whether or not you're going to get it. And it's the gift of change. It's guaranteed, actually. It's a gift of change. Deep, meaningful, personal change is one of the things that Jesus gives us in the gospel. And I want to encourage you and I want to encourage us to participate in it as much as possible. And it's so sweeping that in the passage, it says that the person who beholds Jesus' glory, which means a Christian, is being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. The other translation I actually titled the passage, another way to translate that is from one degree of glory to another. Ever-increasing glory. The free gift of the love of God that comes through Jesus. Now, do you feel like that's happening <laughs> in your life? Or is it the opposite? So I need to talk about it in order to encourage you to. it. I just have two points today I want to share. One, uh, why it's important. Number two, How do you get it? How do you get that change pouring into your life? So first, let me try to show you how important it is for the way that you are created. So I've been talking about, you don't even have to be a Christian here. I know you you think it's important, even if you're not a Christian yet. And if you can get that change, you might even say that it might save you. It could save you if you change. Uh, There's a researcher named Carol Dweck. Uh, She's a psychologist. She was actually my professor. Uh, child psychology professor when I was in college, 30 years ago, uh, but she pioneered a phrase um, that I think is more popular now, which is called the growth mindset. Have you heard that? The growth mindset. It's, and she's really demonstrated the power of, the psychological power of believing that you can improve, the believing that it's power, uh, that it's possible to improve. So she did a study with 10-year-olds. And she brought him into a room, and she gave him a bunch of problems that were just a little bit too hard for them, was a little bit out of their reach. Ten-year-olds should not be able to do these problems. Um, But some of the kids reacted in a surprising way. And they said, some of the kids said something like, I love challenges. I was hoping that I would learn something new. And they had a great time because they understood that their abilities, their intelligence, they weren't limiting factors. They could actually grow in those things. But other students, so that's a growth mindset. The other students had what Carol Dweck calls a fixed mindset. And they looked at these problems that they couldn't solve, and it was catastrophic. And they said things like, I'm not smart enough to do this. I can't do this problem. And Carol Dweck says they were missing one crucial word, which is yet. I'm not smart enough yet. I can't do this yet. And so they got defensive and they got anxious and they thought the idea that they were smart was being challenged and they were crushed. So growth mindset, fixed mindset. But here's what's interesting. You probably have already categorized yourself into one or the other, but here's what's interesting. Carol Dweck asked the students with the fixed mindset, Over a year, she tracked these kids. She said, if you had another test like this again, what would you do differently? In a bunch of problems that a little bit too hard for you to solve, how would you approach it differently? And you know what the fixed mindset kid says? Number one, study out of 2007, you can look it up. They said they would cheat. They would lie because if your intelligence is fixed, it doesn't matter how much you study. You're still gonna fail if you're fixed. They said they would cheat. There's a lot of cheating. in school. My, my, my wife is a high school teacher. It's in the culture. <laughs> Some of them in study in 2008 said not that they would cheat, but a lot of them said they would find people who did worse than them so that they could feel better about themselves. And then thirdly, in study after study, they tracked these kids over the years. The main finding they found was, with fixed mindset kids, They found that when things got hard, they ran from difficulty. Conflict with their parents, boyfriend, girlfriend mistreating them, dealing with troublesome clients over the span of their lives. They ran from all kinds of difficulty. The growth mindset folks did the opposite. They were excited by difficulty. They sprung into action when there was a problem. In fact, they did studies on their brain, they pro- you know, I don't know what they do, they put probes on their brain, and when they were faced with dif- difficulty, the fixed mindset, folks, there was almost no activity. It, tr- it, it was as if the brain was trying to shut down. The growth mindset, folks, there was firing all over the place. Running to difficulty, running away from difficulty. Growth mindset, fixed mindset. And over time, they found that people with a growth mindset, they got better grades, They got better jobs, they went farther in life because they just didn't give up at anything. Now which one are you? You need to know, you need to at least to believe that you can grow. (laughs) And that is the power of psychology, sermon over. (laughs) see, Carol Dweck as a psychologist can give you the power that comes from merely believing that you can improve. This is so important. In, in my neighborhood, I know you care about your neighborhood. In my neighborhood, George Washington High School has a 20% graduation rate. And I talk to the educators there, and it's, it's done before they're in seventh grade. Why? Because they come into math, and they are not told that you can improve in math. It's stuck in their head that I am not good at math when they're young. And we need to know, just to believe is powerful. But... Let's go further. I want you to know that this passage, finally getting to this passage, this verse, this passage is a wrecking ball against the fixed mindset. In every aspect of your life, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, socially, because it is spiritual, it's a wrecking ball against all stagnation mentally, emotionally, morally, Socially, not only does this passage say that you can believe that you can develop, but it says that as you behold Christ's glory, it is guaranteed. It is happening to you. Although you are wasting away on the outside, inwardly you are being renewed day by day. Isn't that what the scripture says? There is this secret undying that the moment that you trusted in Christ, He began to make you new into a glorious person. He makes it into a cosmic reality in your life. And so, therefore, the growth is inevitable, a gift given to you by the grace of Christ. That is your life story now, if you are in Christ. And so, I, I don't know you, uh, but can I talk to you this way? <laughs> therefore, how dare you stay the same year after year? How dare you stay the same level of rude? Or how dare you stay the same level of not rude? How dare you stay the same level of courageous? How dare you stay at the same level of not courageous? Why are we just rolling over and not letting the Spirit of God work glory into our lives? How dare you lose hope that you could be less of a coward this year than last year? Why not look for the hope that you could have a fighting chance against depression? I know it's chemical. We might call it a disease, you know, but but how come you're not fighting anymore? How come you, you lost hope that you could be less afraid of failure? God is inevitably moving you toward his glory. The theological word for this, if you're keeping score, is sanctification. And by the way, that may be more than you were coming to church for this morning. And you know, a lot of people coming back to church, you think that they just need a solid, time-tested, moral standard to help order their lives. Get the, if they can do a little bit what God wants, they can get a little bit more peace in their life. Just help me be a little bit moral because, you know, I understand that. Maybe your parents grew you up in a home that was really chaotic. You know, and right and wrong was taught to you was really not based on a, a, an ordered standard, but on their mood day by day. And so when you, under, when you understand that God has a standard that He's baked into this world, and if you follow it, you will be more whole because you were created for it, I understand. You gravitate toward it, but take another look at this passage. He's not just trying to make you more moral. He wants to make you glorious, he cares so much about your ambitions for yourself than you care for yourself. I mean, you are supposed to... What you, the thing with Moses, you see all the veil stuff here? You read it and you didn't understand it? I had, I had to go study it. It's a referencing a story in Exodus 34 where Moses goes up the mountain to meet with God. And because he's with God, God is just so beautiful and glorious and holy that he's shining this radiant, bright light. And Moses just being with him, it, it rubs off on him, and his face starts shining. You know, like it's what the Old Testament calls the Shekinah glory, right? Shekinah glory was on his face. And so he, his face was—sorry, I'm yelling at you. I don't know you. <laughs> But his face is shining and so when he leaves God and he goes back down and he's trying to relate the message to the other people of God, his face is still bright and shining and he's telling them the message of God but his brother Aaron comes and says, "You know, Moses, I'm trying to listen to you but your face is burning my eyeballs. I can't listen, could you maybe veil your face? To shroud your face so my brain doesn't get fried? And he carried that glory with him. Paul says in this passage that same image, at least metaphorically, (laughs) but really spiritually is happening to you. God's glory is being birthed in you as you meet with him and you reflect it. And that you're supposed to shine. That is what the ambition of God is for you. For the rest of your life, growing in this glory, every day, every moment, it's happening to you as you participate in your relationship with Him. And it goes on forever. We'll talk about that at the end. But this is your life story now if you are a Christian. The growth never stops. That's why when Jesus running around and saying, the kingdom of God is near, the kingdom of God is near, it's like a little mustard seed about this big, but it grows into a big tree, into a big bush. Basically, he's talking about a forest where all the birds and all the animals take shelter in it. It grows. And we are here just trying to defend the little doctrines of grace that we have that gave us peace 10 years ago, and we're just trying to defend it instead of learning something new. I'm growing in skill and character. I'm getting mad, but I don't know why I'm getting mad. I love you. Uh, and, 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 you know, if it's the glory of God that we are being grown into, that image, you know, that's an, in, he's infinite in glory, which means no matter if you're 80 or if you're 20, you still have the same amount of uh, distance to go. <laughs> There's, it doesn't matter if you're 80 and you have no more neuroplasticity in your brain. Doesn't mean you can't grow Again, you can no matter where you are, when you are, and so you might as well pick up your Bible and keep reading it. You might as well pray, get on your knees and pray to God about the thing that's keeping you up at night. And build some more character. There's always some new capacity that you grow. Isn't that exciting? I think that's exciting. What's he gonna do with you this year? And every once in a while, I go to a diner in my neighborhood. I know Astoria is famous for diners. And by the way, is Crescent Diner down here, is that a business? Oh, I'm sorry about that. But I know you guys know about diners anyway. So I go to a diner in my neighborhood. And in this diner, it's not always the same one, same couple, but I always see an older married couple, and they show up at diners all the time. And they are sitting there eating with each other, you, you know the couple, and they're not talking to each other. <laughs> They're eating next to each other, not with each other. In fact, they're kind of trying to ignore each other. Maybe they're sick of each other, but they're clearly a couple. And if they talk to each other, maybe it's kind of mean, like, go get the waitress or something like that. And you watch them. And I, I don't want to judge them, but I do watch them. And I, I think to myself, how did they get like that? How, how did they get like that? Because I guarantee you, it didn't start out like that. Their relationship did not start out like that. It happened sometime when they were younger. And at some point, they stopped growing in glory. Or at least wanting or believing that glory was a part of their marriage. Maybe, you know, because you can be moral in a marriage, right? Be immoral. Don't cheat. Be nice to each other. Raise the kids, right? You be moral. And that's one thing. But then you could, you could do that. But then look forward to the next 20, 30 years of your life eating next to each other. But if grace has made unending glory your life story, well, then let's learn how to put glory into our marriage, not just morality. Let's learn how to grow into that. If you're single, by the way, there's other metaphors or things I like, you, you know, it's not just for married people. But listen, whether you're 80 or you're 20, you might as well start now. And what is the glory? Before I move on, i got to itemize it because I'm just glory is this great. Is it, does it mean my face actually literally shines? No. When we talk about God's glory, that there's an image of his glory that you're being grown into, we're talking about God's attributes, everything that makes God, God. He has these attributes infinitely, but you have them finitely, and you're growing toward it. So what are his attributes? Here, I'm just going to, if I had a screen, I would just put them all up there and say, pick one. But what are the things that make God God because he has them infinitely and make him glorious? Well, what about joy? Could you use more joy in your life this year? Joy is in the center of the life of God. Peace, patience, goodness, kindness, the ability to suffer long, sacrificial, generous, and if you watch Jesus being able to hang out with people nobody else wants to hang out with, with the least last and lost to prioritize them? What if we were a big, what if the church in New York was a bunch of people who prioritized the broken? That would be glorious. Befriending those who, not, who don't have friends, and not just the attributes that have, make him nice, but what about the ones that make him competent? Like justice, perseverance or service, or courage, or wisdom, integrity, diligence. I'm reading a list. Is this a boring sermon? Like, Which one do you need? Yeah, and if you had one degree more, man, you would be more glorious than you are today. Resilience, even power. He has it infinitely, but what if you learn to use power in the way that he does for others flourishing and not for yourself? you would be more glorious are you interested in growing in any one of these and do you know that this is your story if you are in Christ the moment that you trusted Jesus and beheld his glory he began making you shine and so therefore Christians should have the ultimate growth mindset when problems come into your life that you do not yet know how to solve are you just rolling over are you, letting, or are you letting him disrupt your life in order to teach you new things and that your souls get buzzing with activity? Don't stay the same person. It's important. Point number one. Point number two. How do we get more of this in our life? Because I know you hear this. I had people come after I preached a version of this sermon at my, at my church. They came up there and said, I admit it, fine, I admit it. I kind of have given up. But I know why I've given up. And that's because I've tried to be courageous and it didn't work. I tried. I have all kinds of behavior patterns that I know God doesn't like. I have all kinds of behavior problems that, patterns that I don't like. I mean, forget about God's standard. Just by my standard, I'm screwing it up. And he doesn't seem to be changing me. I'm up one day, one degree of glory to another. I don't know. The Christian life seems like I try really hard and sometimes I do good. and sometimes Christian life is win some and lose some. And that doesn't sound very glorious. Win <laughs> some and you lose some. And I hope I'm still a Christian when I die. That's not glory. Let's deal with that. I think it's actually really, really healthy to admit that you gave up that this is a problem. Verse 12, uh, can I read it to you? It says, therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. We're not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. What does that mean? I have to do a little Bible study because I know you're confused about that. What he's saying is there was a problem with the reflective glory of God that was symbolized by the veil in that the glory went away. Is that like Moses got his face all shiny, right? Because he was with the glory of God. But at some point he left the presence of God and the shine became no more. And so that the veil that was a symbol of the glory because he had to wear to shield everybody's eyeballs because the glory was there Became a veil of shame because it was hiding the fact that the glory wasn't there anymore. The shine wasn't there. You get it? You know, you know, that's horrible because what's worse, dude? Like to have no glory ever or to have stratospheric glory and then not have it anymore. How pathetic is an aging rock star? You feel sick in your stomach, right? Because oh, he used to play to 20,000 people in Yankee Stadium and now he's like wrinkled and he still has the same hair wearing spandex and you're like, "Dude, stop trying to get the same attention and but there's a hole in his heart, her heart." Your glory days are in high school. Your best days are behind you. Ugh. The glory comes to an end. In other words, you run out of glory on your own. It's one of the greatest diagnoses of the Bible of the human heart. It's the ultimate fixed mindset problem that we are painfully aware that we have finite glory and we are just like those 10-year-old kids. You come into church and you are pay- you are veiling over all those things that you don't want the other Christians to see. Because you know if you shared with them what you were really thinking in your mind and what you do- really did with your search engines this week that your friends wouldn't want to be friends with you anymore. You are veiling, you are cheating you're lying. Why 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 does the culture hate Christians? Because we are looking for people who are worse than us to make ourselves feel better. We're just like those 10-year-olds, and when we come into challenges that might put on display our lack of glory, we run away from them. We cover up our insecurities. We have a bunch of veils that are covering up the shame. It's a real problem one of the first people I met when I started uh, my church, Uptown, had been a Christian for a year and he had been sober for a year. He had spent five years drinking a lot, but then he'd been a Christian for a year and he was sober for a year, so Jesus made a difference, yay. But two weeks after he came to my church, uh, I was helping him, became his pastor, but he, two weeks after he called me from his ex-girlfriend's apartment And he couldn't remember how he got there. He said, can you come and help me get home? He had gone on a 24-hour bender. He didn't remember anything. And I realized that's not a good advertisement for my church. You know, like he's a Christian for a year, and then two weeks after he comes to my church, he goes on a bender. But when I got there, I asked him, hey, what happened? Uh, And I remember I wrote it down. He said, I don't know, Pastor. All my self-control, all my self-generated control kind of broke like a dam. But my question is, did Jesus break the dam or did I? It was almost like he couldn't explain it, that the glory went away and all of a sudden he had this very deep spiritual question, which is, is God still with me or not? Is Jesus still with me or not? One degree of glory to another was not his experience. And he told me not to tell anybody in the church. He had made all these wonderful new friends in the church. In other words, veil it for me, please. And he was right. Is the veil a symbol of glory or is it a symbol of shame? I didn't read this part to you. I'm doing more Bible study here. Earlier in chapter 3, Paul calls the veil not a symbol of God's glory, but a ministry of condemnation. Which one is it—a sign of His present glory, or you know—you're in a Jewish synagogue here. We're in a Jewish synagogue too, and I talked to the rabbi about Exodus 34, and actually, he's a genius. He memorized all of the—it's like the Mishnah, all of the ancient commentaries on Exodus 34. And I said, "What did the Jewish scholars say about what the veil actually symbolizes?" He says, "We don't know." It's a real problem that is put here. We don't know if the veil means that you're glorious because God is present, or we don't know if it's a veil of shame because you don't have any glory of your own. Which one is it? Did they, and if the glory is gone, the existential question is, is God with me or not? And if God is not with me, I know I'm losing my glory. Why should I go to Bible study again? I'm not going to improve. It's, nothing's going to change. You get what I'm saying? I'm walking you into a wall because I know that's our experience. What do you mean one degree of glory is guarant- one, uh, to another is guaranteed? Here's how, here's how. It's not up to you. It's not up to your effort. It's not up to your present level of glory to determine whether or not you get more glory. You have to look at and gaze on someone else. Verse 13 says we are not like Moses who had put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away but their their minds were made dull for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read it has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away we got a veil a confusing veil we want it there but we don't know why it's there, because is it a symbol of glory or is it of shame? But it's there, but only Christ can take it away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts, but whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. It's something about looking at Jesus. Now everybody remembers that Jesus walked on water. And that's pretty amazing, Right? They say, "Oh, he must be God. He's walking on water." But do you remember in the New Testament that somebody else walked on water? Who was it? Peter. Peter walked on water, and that's so hopeful. You know why? Because that means that there, there. If Jesus walked on water, he's God. I can't do that. But if Peter walks on water, that means there are capacities that we can learn that we have no idea. We're we're vastly underperforming. But when Peter walked on water, you remember he walked toward Jesus. On the water, he was so excited, but then right in the middle of it, what happened? He stumbled. He did one of those cartoon like he was in the middle of the air and like and he fell in the water. Why did he fall in the water? Then Matthew 14, it says he was looking at Jesus, and then it's because of the storm. He saw the storm. Literally, it says he looked at the wind. He was looking, he was, was looking at Jesus, and now he's looking at nothing. He's looking at air rushing by and he gets afraid and he starts to sink. It's something about looking at Jesus makes us glory, gives us capacities. That when we're looking at him, we grow in glory. When we're not looking at him, it it kind of disappears. And so what will bring us back into that presence of God? How do we keep on going? You know, Peter kept on screwing up. He's just like us. He, He watched Jesus long enough to get him beaten and even though he promised that he was going to stay with Jesus, he said he denied him three times. He was on the same roller coaster, in other words, that you and I are on. But here's the one thing about Peter, I know. Eventually he did become glorious because he stayed looking at Jesus long enough that he watched him die on the cross. He watched him. He looked at him long enough that he saw Jesus dying on the cross. And what I want you to know to try to finish this sermon is that when Jesus died on the cross, the scripture tells us at the exact same moment in the temple, there was another veil. There was another veil. It was like super thick. And it went from the top of the temple to the bottom of the temple. And it was like a wall. And it was to prevent cheating, lying, judgmental fearful people like this unholy people from coming into the center of the glory of God the presence of the glory of God because holy people can't come over there there was a barrier but the scripture tells us when Jesus died on the cross the moment he died on the cross the veil was torn in two from top to bottom it was opened up which means that people like you and me who are cheating and veiling and fearful and not courageous we can walk right into the glory of God whenever we want because Jesus Christ died on the cross for us to pay the penalty for our sin to be shunned he rose to the moment of difficulty knowing that he would fail that if he failed, it would be successful for the salvation of sinners like us because it would open up the veil. Is the veil a veil of glory, or a veil of shame? Who cares anymore? It's torn. Walk in. You screwed up today. You're a murderer today. You looked at the wrong thing on the internet today. Who cares? The veil is torn and you can walk right in again to the glory of God to get your face shiny again. Is that what you need today? Anytime you fail, anytime you're broken, anytime you sin, you admit it, and you can walk right in because Jesus Christ died on the cross for you and tore the veil. Look at him. Watch him do it again. He only did it once, but you can watch him do it over and over and over and over again. That's what keeps us coming back, not your own willpower, not the level of your own glory, that is not what prompts you to become more glorious and holy. It is the vision of Jesus Christ making a way where all that was in front of you was a veil. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. Therefore, you can grow. Therefore, if you are 80, there is access to almighty God, which has been opened up for you and you can go right in. How come, you're, how come you stop praying? How come you, ask you haven't asked him to make you better? How come you, you've been given up being good? There's no reason. It's the gift of grace given to us you can change. Amen? Let me pray. Um, Father, thank you for this gift given freely at great cost to us. You gave your son. You gave your son who who He had all the beauty and all the glory and he counted it nothing and he sacrificed all of it that we might get it instead. Our elder brother is beautiful and glorious and we receive such love from him. Thank you. Help us to look to you and believe what is true that we can change. Amen.